Law enforcement has one of the toughest jobs on the planet. A delicate balance between logic and that gut feeling, a knowing. Some law enforcement officials lean into this innate ability to heighten their senses, the gut instinct, that sixth sense that tingles at the back of their skull. Some just go by the book, logic and tried and true ways to investigate. Well, what happens when the paranormal is introduced into their work? Does it force open the minds and eyes of law enforcement, or does it push them away? Should cops be taught to examine these moments more deeply, to be open to outside or otherworldly influence? Our first guest has a unique perspective on this topic. Matt Mixa is a former FBI worker and an author. Mark Anthony will join us a little bit later in the program to discuss a case he recently helped on that resulted in an arrest. And we examine two cases of true crime where the supernatural played a big role. The ghosts themselves cried out for justice, and justice was served. Today, we explore this topic right here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this baloney. He won't float. He doesn't stand for baloney. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I want to tell you there's some big news with the podcasting aspect of the show. We are now available, and I want to make sure I cover all of this. The Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader can now be heard on the Unex Network as an audio-only podcast. You can also find us on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Deezer, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Amazon Music, and Audible, and we are continuing to grow Thank you very much. And if there are some different platforms you think we should try, just email me, Dave, at Paranormal60.com. Let me know where you'd like to find the show. But what would really help me is whichever way you watch the show, whether it's this, the video version of the podcast, or you listen to the audio-only versions, please rate and review those shows where you can. That helps to get our exposure out to a bigger, broader audience, and we could always use your help. Listen, our first guest is fascinating. Matt Mixa is a former FBI intelligence analyst who helped prevent foreign spies from stealing America's secrets. Today, he writes espionage thrillers that blend history, politics, science, and the supernatural. Today, we discuss his concept that supernatural mystery novels could help America's elite law enforcement organizations defeat today's most creative criminals. So please help us welcome to the Paranormal 60 Matt Mixa. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Dave. Wow, what an intro. Well, this is, you know, I, I was online, as I'm always doing, looking for interesting stories, and I, I catch this headline. Let me see if I can see what the headline uh, was specifically, but it was along the lines that, um, what if the FBI required recruits to read paranormal crime thrillers? And then scroll down and then find out this is coming from somebody who actually worked for the FBI, and this really intrigued the hell out of me. So what inspired you to kind of write about that? And, and uh, you know, if you could explain your thought process to us on that. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's fair to say criminals are getting smarter. They have more tools, more technology at their disposal, which requires law enforcement to stay one step ahead. And at the FBI, I worked on the national security side, specifically in the counterintelligence division. And that's really taking things up a notch above uh, even um, the criminal activity because you're working with foreign intelligence um, agencies that are spending a lot of time and energy specifically trying to figure out how to deceive us. So there, there are no lengths that foreign intelligence services won't go to to try to fool and trap um, our own um, officers and activities that they conduct within our country that we then need to be able to detect and disrupt effectively. So, you know, thinking about that thought process being very nonlinear and needing to think creatively and more abstractly 
to try to peel back the reality that a foreign spy might want you to see to understand what's really happening underneath the surface. And this is essentially what paranormal mystery thrillers do is they allow us to train our minds to expect the impossible, to expect the unexpected, to shake off any unconscious bias that you might have going into it. You're always thinking about what's really happening underneath the surface that we're not meant to see or that the way we normally perceive reality is is shielding the truth from us. So um, that was really the premise of my article was if our law enforcement officers, if the FBI were training its agents and analysts to break from the linear thinking of evidence A, evidence B, evidence C, this must be the answer to what's really happening under the surface. If we were to connect these dots in a completely different way, would we reveal a picture that is actually closer to the truth that maybe there are actors trying to conceal from us? Well, looking at the way that procedural law and and investigations go, incorporating, obviously, we've seen articles and and, uh, redacted files that have been released talking about FBI, CIA, NSA that have done tests with like the men who stare at goats, right? You're trying to use telepathy, trying to find ways to remote view into locations to access information. So it seems like they are using that and utilizing that to a certain degree. Um, Do you think that by introducing aspects of the paranormal, I've, I've often thought, even if you're not a believer, if during your training in FBI or for the police, you spent two days learning the concept of remote viewing, getting outside of your head, kind of like you're, you're proposing in your thoughts, getting outside of your head and looking at a bigger scope of the story and seeing if you could put yourself in a way into the mindset of the criminals or the, the governments that we're working against, um, do you think overall that would be something that would be detrimental because of the belief systems of the agents involved? Or do you think that it would only help them in their investigative procedures? Yeah, I think it would be extraordinarily helpful. And I mean, some really classic examples of our intelligence services using this kind of, of thought process to um, not only detect deception from our enemies, but to be more clever in how we also deceive our enemies. Um, I recently read a book called Spy Dust. It was a memoir by um, the late Antonio Mendez, who was the head of the Office of Technical Services for the CIA for many years. And um, he talked about the importance of using extraordinary thinking to try to stay a step ahead of, in his case, the, the Soviet spies in Moscow that he was trying to uh, to gather information from or try to operate within that denied enemy territory. And he was really well known for working with and partnering with Hollywood illusionists out in California and special effects experts um, who worked on real feature films because he knew that those crafts were all about all about putting on a very particular show for the adversary so that what they're seeing is being manipulated by certain tools and tricks of the trade. And that I think is something we can learn too, is how are we being affected by, um, you know, enemy spies using disguises or using certain kinds of software that's meant to mask their activities. Um, So that kind of thinking has been part of the culture of uh, the folks in the intelligence agencies today. Um, The real question is when we then bring that into a procedural law enforcement environment, there is still a tendency to follow the path of least resistance. And I, and I know FBI agents are trained to try to overcome this kind of confirmation bias where you have an, a hypothesis, we're all you know, humans, so we naturally will say, okay, I think this is probably what happened. And then you start to collect evidence and it all seems to line up a little too perfectly. And it's difficult then for our brains to say, well, what if all of this is wrong or what am I not seeing that would change this picture? Um, I used to call these folks at the FBI the tire squealers because you'd give them a piece of evidence, just one or two pieces of evidence that seemed irrefutable. It might be a hair sample or DNA or something at a crime scene. And you can practically 
hear the tires of the Crown Vic squealing as they're tearing away from the, the division to go and knock on a door or arrest somebody. Um, but really, you have to stop and say, well, who put the evidence there? How did it get there? Where did it come from? And um, I think, again, the abstract thinking, the acceptance of different points of view and different realities that paranormal mysteries bring into the conversation, that they, they would benefit from that kind of thinking. And um, a perfect example in fiction is Stephen King's The Outsider. You know, this is a classic police procedural that he wrote. And the entire first third of the book is all of the irrefutable forensic evidence pointing to the guilt of one of the characters. You have the DNA samples, you have video evidence, you have witnesses. And then there's a turn where you start to realize all of that evidence is actually contradictory to what really, really they think happened. And the story is brilliant because it requires the main character who is a seasoned local detective to struggle with that journey of overcoming that linear confirmation bias driven thinking and start to accept that the impossible could be possible and and start to research things outside of of the realm of what you normally see in these types of cases to ultimately get to a place where they could solve the case and i won't give away any more than that because it's a fabulous book but i think it, that would be a perfect example of a paranormal crime thriller that law enforcement could read and say i see the traps that th this main character fell into i see how they were hamstrung by their own limitations right. and ultimately getting to the answer and, and then what that character had to do to then reframe their thinking to get to the solution. Well, I'll throw the book, The Outsider, in our Amazon shop, folks. So if you go to paranormal60.com, click on the store and scroll down to our Amazon shop, go in and find all of our goodies. Not only will you find The Outsider by Stephen King, but you will also find Don't Get Close by Matt Mixa. And uh, this is this is out and available right now. An infamous reincarnation cult resurfaces in the wake of a deadly bombing. And it's up to the FBI novice to learn its true aim and uncover its dark past before it consumes her. Has prepping for this book opened you up more to the concepts of the paranormal and, and things like reincarnation? You know, I had never really thought much about reincarnation before writing this book. And I think that's one of the best things about being an author is you get to dive into topics that you, you'd never really thought about much before. And at reincarnation, you know, I knew that it was a central tenet of, of many uh, Eastern religions and and also you know had a following among uh, americans i found the pew research center actually said they did a, a poll and found that about one third of americans believe they will be reborn in another body after they die which is a much higher number than i would have thought and uh, and so i start digging into reincarnation and the belief structures and the um the history and politics of it and was really surprised to learn that there are serious academic and medical professionals who have been studying the science of reincarnation for more than 40 years. Mm -hmm. the, um, the late Dr. Ian Stevenson in the, in the 1970s founded the University of Virginia School of Medicine's Division of Perceptual Studies, um, sort of stumbled upon these cases of people who remembered past lives. And he spent the next four decades, and this work continues with Dr. Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia, investigating these cases of people who say, I have these memories that aren't from this life that I can't explain. And um, there's over 2,500 documented encoded cases that have all kinds of different markers in them that they've been able to identify that create a lot of similarities and themes among people who seem to have retained the memories of a deceased person. Um, I read hundreds of these cases when researching for my novel, Don't Get Close, because I didn't want it to sound fantastical that reincarnation was a, a, an aspect out there that is, is, is spooky or unexplained when there actually is so much evidence that's been collected by these academic professionals to try to build some kind of evidentiary framework for this being a possibility. Uh, in fact, every reference to reincarnation, past lives, hypnotic regression in the novel is based and inspired on a real case. 
Very cool. Well, I noticed as I went to your your website, and we do have a link for the website on today's program guide as well. As I'm going through it, not only do you have all the information up about your books and about your background, but you've got uh, a blog series regarding many different um, cases of reincarnation. And I'm including that link directly to your blog so people can find that as well. So today they're going to find your website, your book, the link to the original article blog that uh, brought me to you, and then the link to your your reincarnation blogs, what one of those stories really stood out most to you? Yeah, so I, like I said, I read hundreds of these cases and many of them were written in academic journals. In fact, Dr. Stevenson garnered the respect and attention of his medical peers over the years because he was very dispassionate about how he investigated these cases. He followed a rigorous methodology, he documented everything in a very uh, objective scientific way uh, the result of that is sometimes a lot of inaccessible articles in academic journals that take a little bit of time to work through and he would have these very detailed tables comparing evidence so i thought i wanted to i wanted to bring these stories to um, my readers in a way that that were bite-sized that in you know five minutes they could kind of get the gist of the coolest most interesting parts of some of these cases so 14 of my favorite reincarnation stories are on my blog at mattmixa.com right now um, i gravitated toward the ones that had verifiable information that this person should absolutely not have had access to um, you know stevenson did a lot of work with children because his his hypothesis was children have a less time to have uh, interacted with information and um, and influences that mm -hmm. could subconsciously be then reflected. And so, you know, cases of children waking up and speaking fluent French for you know ha having never traveled out of the country or had exposure to the French language before, that phenomenon is called xenoglossy where someone can fluently speak and understand a language they've had no exposure to. Um, but then there's a case of a woman who not only began speaking French, but she began singing a song in French from the middle ages. And he was able Frere to then... Jacques, Frere Jacques. <laughs> Except not that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so I incorporated something like this into my book. Like I, you know, invented a, a song written by a troubadour in the middle ages that a character is remembering but this again inspired by a real case of a woman who is remembering the lyrics of this song that was popular in the you know 1500s that again not having had any exposure to medieval studies or or you know that kind of of uh, uh of poetry from the time but one of my favorites i think it, the story starts in 1918 it's the heat of world war one and uh, a general named General Seehofer, who's part of the, the Austrian army, he lays down his weapons inexplicably and begins walking toward the front lines of battle. And his soldiers are all waving at him, don't do that, you're gonna get shot, you're gonna get shot. So he gets shot and he dies shortly thereafter in an Italian prison. But then if you fast forward 16 years later, there's a boy born in Linz, Austria named Helmut, and he starts behaving strangely. He salutes everybody. He refuses to go outside with his overcoat open because as he puts it, an officer always has his overcoat buttoned. Um, so is this just a young boy who's obsessed with soldiers as you might expect? Possibly, but then he says, you know what? I used to be a, a soldier in the great war and I lived at this address. Now this is where it gets interesting to me. This kid is in kindergarten and it's 1935. So there's no Google maps or anything. And he says, I used to live at nine Manfred Fred drive in Linz, Austria. And then he gives another address where he says he was after that. And then he provides a third address, which he says was where his in-laws lived in Vienna. So he didn't give a name, but researchers were able to go and look at the property records of these three addresses that this kindergartner provided and found the first two were residences of General Seehofer. And the third address was the residence of General Seehofer's in-laws. Wow. And he had never been to these places. He didn't have any connection to this family. This is 17 years later. Um, so that, that kind of thing fascinates me because again, it's information 
memories of a deceased person without any explanation that can be verified. And um, Stevenson's group of researchers at the University of Virginia understood that there might be people who tried to, to create hoaxes and they, they investigated, okay, did this person have any contact? Is there any way they could have come across this information? And they did in their dispassionate scientific way, identify some cases that they considered not to be legitimate, but thousands of cases that they couldn't explain. Amazing. And that to me starts to build a base of evidence that raises the real question of how is this happening? Is it reincarnation? They considered, is it some form of telepathy that these memories are being received by these people in, in a way we don't yet understand about how the brain communicates? Um, the, ac the explanation when we finally determine it is going to be, I think, just as shocking as the evidence itself. But, uh, but again, I just kept reading more and more and more of these cases. And all 14 on my blog have elements like that, truly verifiable information that the person should not have had exposure to. Fascinating stuff. Again, get the book, folks. It's available in our shop, Amazon shop. Don't get close. A novel by Matt Mixa. Matt, thank you so much for stopping in today and spending some time with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, stay tuned because when we return, we're going to be visited by our good friend, Mark Anthony, the author of The Afterlife Frequency. And he's got some interesting stories to tell, including a case that he's worked on that was just resolved. We'll do that next right here on the Paranormal 60. And we are back. There is a thin line between what law enforcement is willing to accept and move on and that which they cannot. What happens when someone from the metaphysical world or realm reaches out to law enforcement with insights from the other side, or even more intriguing, when the restless spirits themselves seem to come forward crying for justice. We're now joined by my good friend and longtime collaborator, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. Mark is the author of the bestsellers, The Afterlife Frequency, Evidence of Eternity, and Never Letting Go. He's an Oxford-educated trial attorney licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. He appears regularly on television as a legal analyst, psychic medium, and expert on the paranormal, on after-death communication and near-death experiences. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome for the first time to the Paranormal 60, Mark Anthony. Mark, good to see you. Hey, Dave. It's great being on the Paranormal 60. We've worked a lot over the years, and I'm, I'm really honored to be on your new show. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. I wanted to talk about this because this is an intriguing element of what we do. I mean, I've covered true crime and paranormal for so long, but I'm, I'm just curious— how hand in hand is the metaphysical with police work? We know that a lot of police have that kind of sixth sense. They, they've they got that innate ability in a lot of them. Um, and, and many of them are paranormal investigators on the side, as we've seen and heard throughout the years. Sure. But how open is law enforcement to help from the metaphysical? Is it more often than we're led to believe or is it more rare? Well, the official mainstream position is they're crackpots, stay away from them. But behind the scenes, that's an entirely different story. And I speak from experience because I've been consulted by various uh, law enforcement agencies, families, and even U.S. military intelligence on uh, cases that could be considered or, or that are cold cases. And, and the reason that it's behind the scenes, Dave, is because with, without a doubt, Nothing could be more of a hearsay statement than messages from spirits. And a basic understanding of hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And if the out-of-court statement can't be subjected to cross-examination, then it falls under hearsay. Now, there's exceptions, but you know, I, I'm, we're not going to go off into that because this is what focuses specifically on the use of psychic intuition and mediumship in, in working with the police. So here's how it's useful. While psychic intuition cannot be used to, uh, you know, as direct evidence in court, 
what we can do is behind the scenes, we can give the police information that will set them on the trail to where then they can find evidence which is admissible. So we're part of the investigation aspect. And we're going to talk in a little bit about a case where, you know, supposedly the, the ghost of the victim helped crack the case. Uh, I think it's a bit sensationalized, but, but it really is fascinating. How dare you question the <laughs> spiritual realm? Well, Mark, you talk as though you know firsthand, and you do, right? You had an interesting thing unfold on the TV show The Doctors. I did. Uh, when I was on uh, the CBS TV show, The Doctors, I was asked to do a reading for the family of Allison Feldman. And this was a cold case, and Allison was, was brutally murdered. It was absolutely horrible. And I did a reading for her father and her cousin. And Allison's spirit came through and kept saying that the murder was going to screw up, and he was going to get arrested on an unrelated charge and that's how the police would locate him. They would find him already behind bars. And then the, her spirit kept telling me that the police needed to broaden the parameters of the DNA test. And her father kept saying, well, the police uh, did DNA. They didn't find anything. I said, she keeps saying broaden the parameters. And then she kept giving me the names Franklin and Terrence. Uh, there were some other factors, too, because uh, it was quite a lengthy reading. So here's what happened, Dave. So after the show, the the family of Allison, they went back to Scottsdale, Arizona, and her father talked to the police and insisted that they re-examine the DNA. Well, there is a, a relatively new DNA test called the familial DNA test. And what the familial DNA test does is it broadens the parameters of the search so that it can identify close family members to the DNA sample because, you know, Allison was was brutally raped and murdered and, and the police were able to recover DNA samples from the scene that, that were not Allison's. Well, immediately it picked up a marker of a guy in, in prison in Arizona and he was on, I believe, child molestation charges, but he was not the the suspect he was a close relative well that sample immediately then led to a sample of this guy who got arrested i think it was on his fourth drunk driving charge his name is ian mitchum and that was a direct match so just like allison said he screwed up he was behind bars and they uh, broadened the parameters of the dna test now it gets even better what about the names franklin and terrence well the, this was the first time that familial DNA had ever been used in the state of Arizona. At that point in time, I think roughly a dozen states were employing it. Now, this has been a couple years, so more states are using it. Well, the first time that um, the familial DNA test was ever used was in the state of California, and it led to the arrest and conviction of the Grim Sleeper serial killer, whose name was Lonnie Franklin. So there was the name Franklin. Now, what about the name Terrence? Well, at the time that I did the reading in the state of New York, um, the familial DNA test was being contested by Terrence Stevens. So it was fascinating that the spirit of Allison gave me Franklin, Lonnie Franklin, uh, the first person uh, of, of huge significance, um, who had been captured because of familial DNA, and then Terrence, Terrence Stevens in the state of New York, who was challenging the familial DNA test, and um, his challenge uh, was, was considered invalid by the court system of New York. So familial DNA is now being widely used. The, the last thing that I, I kept getting were... were um, well, one, one second, Mark, I, I do have to ask you this because I know yeah. the skeptics out there watching and my own brain have fired in. She gives you Franklin and Terrence. Right. Why not just give you the name of the killer? You know, that's the one thing that, that people keep asking and keep asking. And I have done over 15,000 readings and sometimes the names come through and sometimes they don't. And here's why I think that, that sometimes it doesn't happen. In my new book, The Afterlife Frequency, there is a chapter called Avoiding the No-No-No Syndrome. And I talk about how when people go into a reading and if I present information to people and all they say is no, 
um, they create an energetic block. But it's it's not as simple as that. It's also the angst. I want, I want, I want. Give us the name, give us the name, give us the name. And without meaning to, we inadvertently create that same angst. It's also like hyper-analyzing something. Um, like I was doing a reading um, for somebody and I said that I'm getting two sharp pains in my heart. And, and she goes, no, no, he didn't get a heart attack. He got shot in the chest twice. <laughs> yeah. And, and you see, I mean, that, that's that, that's an example. So what I found is if you, you, you can't overthink it, overanalyze it or over desire it. Um, and, and I think that all the other pieces of evidence speak for themselves because obviously, I mean, at that time I wasn't uh, working on any murder cases and I wasn't aware uh, whether or not Arizona had the familial DNA test. And right. certainly at that time, because I, I was, you know, I was in California and I was on a tour, which included being on this national TV show. I didn't know that the familial DNA test was being challenged by somebody with the very same name that the spirit gave me. So I hope that answers your question. It does. It's just, it's fascinating to me how that works. And, you know, it, I, I've got to guess that as frustrating as it might be for me, the survivor wanting you to give me that information, it's got to be equally as frustrating for you that you're not, you know, the, the ghosts seem to give us everything around it without giving us a direct target. Yeah. Well, you know, spirit communication is not texting or instant messaging. I know that we live in the 21st century in the um, information age. And we expect, I mean, we can pick up our phone and say, Hey, Alexa, Hey Siri, Hey, this, you know, give me this. And, and we're used to getting this on demand spirits though, aren't on our timetable. And, you know, there are uh, situations where they may have given something that could be construed. Like the other day I was doing a reading for this woman from Bulgaria and I kept getting the word like incidental, incidental. And it was coming from her uncle. And she goes, Oh, Oh, and she said her uncle's name in Bulgarian, and it kind of sounded like the word incidental. It was like, you know, I can't even begin to pronounce it. So vibrationally, the way we hear things is not always the way you and I are hearing things. Right. Um, it, so it's it's quite a fascinating process, and and I spend a lot of time studying and analyzing it and explaining how spirit communication is possible through the laws of physics and how that's based on electromagnetic impulses. And so what happens, Dave, is what a spirit does, and, and I refer to our soul as the electromagnetic soul. And you did an interview with me uh, back when you were on Darkness Radio when, when the afterlife frequency first came out. And the term electromagnetic soul describes what we really are, which is pure consciousness, a spirit, a soul, that is eternal electromagnetic energy. And and spirits, being pure electromagnetic energy, are emitting waves of frequency. And so that wave of frequency will come into my brain or your brain or somebody who's sleeping at a, at a specific point in, 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 uh, in their sleep pattern. And that wave of frequency will get converted into recognizable concepts based on memories, feelings, and cultural associations. And so that is uh, kind of a, a snapshot of, of how spirit communication um, is possible and is available to everybody in one form or another. Well, obviously you've got the knack for this, but are there any other well-known cases where the spirit realm seemed to interject itself into the investigation? Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm smiling because the Greenbrier Ghost, I mean, just the name Greenbrier Ghost. But this is a really fascinating case, happened uh, in the late 19th century. Elva Zona Heaster, uh, she was known to her family and friends as Zona. And she was, you know, uh, with all due respect to her, just sort of you know, an average looking girl. And in October of 1896, she was swept off her feet by this handsome young blacksmith by the name of Erasmus Shue. And she was smitten by, by Erasmus. And Zona's mother, Mary Heaster, couldn't stand him. She didn't like him. And uh, she said, I don't want you being with this guy. But sadly, Zona said, no, I love him. And they ran off and eloped. 
just a couple months later, on January 23rd of 1897, Zona was found dead at home. And the cause of death was designated as that she died in childbirth. Well, this in this era, the late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, and historically, Dave, it's really not that long ago, you know, in the course right. of human history, but it was a different world. Medical science was nowhere near what it is now. I mean, doctors had only stopped bleeding people maybe a generation or two before this. I don't know. When I get my bill every month, it appears they're still bleeding people. Yeah, you know, you got a point there. (laughs) You got a point there. But in this era, infant mortality rates and women dying during childbirth was unfortunately very common. But Mary Heaster, Zona's mother, felt that the spirit of her daughter, that Zona kept coming to her and kept telling her what really happened. And so Mary Heaster went to the county prosecuting attorney and told him, well, she must have been very convincing and she must have been a very credible person because the prosecutor did not just dismiss her. He got a court order, had the body exhumed, they examined it and found out that Zona had her windpipe crushed. In other words, she was strangled to death. Not only that, her neck was also broken. So Erasmus Hugh was arrested for murder and went to trial. Now, the star witness that led people, led, led the prosecutor, led the police on the trail of exhuming the body said that it was a spirit that told her to do this. So the prosecutor was kind of doing the Texas two-step around this. He was very delicately avoiding doing any any questioning about uh, uh, the spirit of Zona coming through. Well, then it was time for the defense to cross-examine. Different story. And the defense attorney went after Mary Heaster. He was on her, so you would have us believe that a ghost, a ghost of your dead daughter came through. And the thing about Mary Heaster, and I've been through, uh, I've tried over 100 jury trials and in 10 times as many uh, bench trials. Uh, Cross-examination can be very, very heated, especially when you have an attorney right in your face yelling at you. And I hate to admit, sometimes I was that attorney. I always tried to be a gentleman. But the thing is, you know, you've got to get to the truth. And cross-examination is determined to be one of the the surest ways of finding the truth in in our our, uh, system of jurisprudence. So the defense attorney was, was really going after Mary Heaster, and she stood her ground, and she said it was no dream. She insisted it wasn't her imagination. Hugh was convicted and sentenced to prison, and he died a few years later. So apparently Mary Heaster was extremely convincing on the witness stand, and it appears that justice had been done. And so this and but there's there's still some mysteries about this. The motive remains in question. Apparently, Shu had a uh, reputation for having a really hot temper. And before he ever met Zona, he had a previous wife who claimed that he abused her. But the theory of the defense was that it was an unplanned act of violence. So they must have been going on some type of involuntary defense. Also, his relatives maintained his innocence and said that he had no motive to kill his wife. Uh, Of course, this hit the papers, and it is reputed to be the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. And I love the fact that they own it. Right there in town is a sign from the Greenbrier, it says Greenbrier ghost interred here uh, is, uh, what does it say? Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy of the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison. It's the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. You know, Dave, I want to take a step back. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know much about Mary Keister, Zona's mother. It is very possible that she may have been a medium because some people are mediums and they don't fully realize it. It may be a woman also who was in such a state of grief that it opened up, if you will, her ability to communicate. 
But this gets back to your earlier question. In everything that I've read and examined, the spirit she recognized. Why? Because this was her daughter. But there's no mention that the spirit of Zona came through and said, my name is Zona. What she said was, I was murdered. And for example, if I connect with somebody who had been strangled, um, I'll feel tension and pressure around my neck because what spirits do in those electromagnetic impulses, they'll they'll uh, touch things throughout my body to give me an indication of how they passed. So we don't know if the spirit came through and said, "Hi, mom, I'm Zona. Here's my you know uh, name, rank, and serial number," um, and I'm not being facetious. It's just that because Mary Hester recognized the description recognized certain factors about her daughter she was able to to conclude that this was indeed the the spirit of her daughter yeah it's a really weird story but that's not the only time that a ghost was reported to help solve its own uh, its own case where are we going next mark farther back in time to 1801 in suffolk england now this is a very precarious time because If you go back even farther to the year 1735, British Parliament passed the Anti-Witchcraft Act. All right, so we're talking, we're a generation, maybe two generations out of witch trials, okay? And so we're in 1801. Oh, by the way, doctors are still bleeding people, (laughs) um, for real, as opposed to... uh, um, how they do it on paper now. But, um, but Maria Martin was born in Suffolk, England, and she met her lover, another dashing young man by the name of William Corder. And apparently one thing led to another, and he impregnated her. Well, they weren't married, and it appears that he wanted out of this. So he asked her to meet him at the Red Barn. Now, the Red Barn was a local landmark. Everybody knew what it was. And he, he lured her there and enticed her with tales of how they would elope to Ipswich, England. But he had more sinister intentions in mind, and he shot her to death instead. Yikes. Yeah. And so Maria disappeared, and so did William, but he kept sending messages to Maria's family that she was fine. I think he said that they were living on the Isle of Wight. And I've been to the Isle of Wight. It's an absolutely beautiful island in the English Channel. It's kind of a resort city in, in Britain. They even grow grapes there because the climate has uh, a little bit of a Mediterranean feel to it. And uh, from all intents and purposes, they're living happily ever after. However, Maria's stepmother, Anne, didn't buy it for a second. And she kept having recurring dreams about the murder and how the um, Maria's spirit would come to her in the dream state. And Maria indicated that she her body was buried under excuse me under the floor of the red barn well Anne kept insisting that maria's father start digging so he obliged her and he started digging uh underneath the floorboards of the red barn and sadly discovered the skeletal remains of maria now this is in an era long before modern forensics And the body was identified by clothing, hair, and a missing tooth that Maria apparently uh, was known for. But the other incriminating piece of evidence, and even in the non-modern forensic age, it shows that William Corder, excuse me, Corden was a clumsy, clumsy killer because his green handkerchief was found tied around her neck. So even though she was shot in the eye, it was clear that uh, she had also been strangled to some to some extent. So um, the English police in Suffolk, they started investigating and they tracked down Quarter and found him living in London and he had married and had a family. There was a movie, uh, oh, movie buff, there was a classic movie called A Place in the Sun. And it was Montgomery Cliff, Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, I think Shelley Winters. And Montgomery Cliff was was engaged to this beautiful, wealthy young woman who was Elizabeth Taylor, but he had an affair going on the side where he impregnated this um, young uh, woman of no means who was Shelley Winters, 
and he drowned her so that he could go and live with uh, Elizabeth Taylor. And when I was doing the research on this, I'm wondering where they got the uh, idea for the plot on that, because it seems to be parallel here, because the woman that Corder married was the daughter of a prominent London jeweler. I mean, this girl was from a very wealthy family, and together they were running a private school for girls in London. I mean, that in and of itself was kind of creepy. Right. That a guy that goes around murdering young women is now running a school for girls. So Corder, William Corder was arrested. He was brought back to trial in Suffolk. His defense was that he and Maria were having a lover's quarrel and he accidentally shot her in the eye. I mean, you know, which happens. Yeah. yeah, which happens. You know, every every argument, you know, you have with your mate, you pick up a gun and, you know, shoot him in the face and being facetious. Right. And the thing, though, is, as I stated earlier, forensic pathology in the early 19th century was extremely primitive. So it was impossible to determine exactly how Maria was killed. So here's what they did. They charged him with nine different murder charges. Murder by shooting, murder by stabbing, murder by strangulation, and even murder by burying alive. So basically, they figured out every possible way that he could have murdered her. Well, he went to trial. He was convicted and sentenced to death. And on August 11th of 1828, just before he was to be hanged, and, and there was a crowd because this trial, you know, this was a sensationalized trial. You know, a man who married an heiress, who had a girlfriend, illegitimate baby on the side, whom he murdered and then married, you know, buried under the red barn. I mean, this hit the papers. They said there was something like 5,000 people at the gallows when he was about to be hanged. And I'm not one to give killers credit. But in this case, I may actually make an exception because here's what he said. I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate and may God have mercy on my soul. So at the last moment before he was hanged, at least he came clean. You know, um, I, I've studied, you know, we've been through many, you know, cases um, and analyzing cases. And, you know, before Ted Bundy was um, executed, he was complaining, oh, this is terrible. I get to, um, I, I need to call my mother. And an investigator that had been working with him said, did your victims get to call their mothers? Ooh. <laughs> so now here's what's even creepier about right. this case. Okay. So his body's hanging there. And an hour after hanging, he was cut down and he was skinned. Okay, they, they skinned him. His skin was then tanned and it was used to make a cover for a book about the murder he committed. And when I first read this, I go, oh, come on. But I double checked, triple checked this and even BBC, British Broadcasting, has confirmed this. So talk about creepy so what he did was creepy, but then I guess the creepy joke was on him because his skin ended up being the cover uh, for a book about this macabre murder. Well, and, and the other weird things, right? They actually like filleted him and brought yeah. people in so people could go by and see him and they hooked electrodes to him and would electrocute the muscles so that people could see him moving after death. Yeah. Very weird case from start to finish. Mark, it's always great catching up with you. Um, I want people to know they can reach out to you for readings. They can find more information. We have links for you on today's show. We also have your book, The Afterlife Frequency, in our Amazon store. So you can just go to um, uh, paranormal60.com, click the store tab, go on down and go into our Amazon shop. You'll find it there. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back to join us. Thank you, Dave. And uh, it's great working with you again. And I look forward to next time. I do too. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, he is one of the best. That's why he's always on the ready for me when I want to do a program. Anytime there's a topic that I want to tackle, I know I can throw it to Mark and he will research and bring it to us. All right. 
before we get moving into the next segment, which is a favorite and such a favorite that we're even bringing back a favorite. It's a favorite of a favorite. I do want to mention, folks, we got some cool stuff coming up here. I'm going to be at the Metaphysical and Paranormal Conference in Janesville, Wisconsin, April 9th through the 10th. I'm also going to be at the New Jersey Paracon that will be taking place July 23rd in the Oregon area. I will be coming out to see you at the Oregon Bigfoot Festival and beyond. They're mixing Bigfoot and ghosts. So you can come on out and see us July 30th. All the information about these events are are found uh, readily at darknessevents.com. That's darknessevents.com. It's time now for Upon Further Review. And reviewing for us again, ladies and gentlemen, actor, comedian, and humanitarian, Jamie Kaler. Jamie, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Dave. And honestly, I was listening to that earlier thing. And I, I think the greatest honor would be to have my skin live on. Um, I'm not sure about a, uh, a book cover. I'm not a big book guy, but like uh, a very comfortable reclining chair or something that was made from my skin or like a golf bag. Oh, that would be fantastic. To the, Ge- on. the Gein collection, it sounds like. Would be made from the Gein collection or the Buffalo Bill. I like to call it the Buffalo, Buffalo Build collection. The Buffalo Build. I like that. Listen, last time you were here, I gave you a cinematic cult classic, Lamageddon. So I good. It again. I keep. I can't stop watching it. It's that good, and my kids love it. It's who doesn't like llamas? Right. You've got, and you said that they were so good they could they could contextualize the entire movie in in an hour and eight minutes. And I felt that that was kind of a challenge by Jamie Kaler. I felt like you had kind of slapped me with your leather gauntlet made of human flesh, and 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 dared me, defied me to go out and find another movie that I could send your way. And I did it, man. I found a major motion picture starring one of of horror movies' most impressive legends. And uh, let's let's show them the trailer. And I've got to do something different. This is one of those old trailers where there's not a lot of voiceover. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be the voiceover for this trailer as we launch, ladies and gentlemen, The Invisible Ghost. <laughs> Ominous footsteps in the night, foreshadowing terrifying deaths. By day, a man of honor. By night, a place The invisible world. I came to say goodbye, Jews. You never left me. Without saying goodbye. No clues, no fingerprints, no motive, nothing. But surely if a man was choked to death, there would be imprints on his throat. Why in the world do you stay in this place? We can't leave. The Invisible Ghost. This, I mean, Bella Lugosi, an hour and three minutes long, Jamie Kaler. Tight. It's tight, I would argue. Did it need more time to flesh out a story, or was a minute or the three minutes over the hour just the perfect match for this? Perfect. Story? I got it. I got the whole story in that time frame. Uh, by the way, when she she thinks the guy's dead and then he's alive, that's at the coroner's office. Uh, she goes to the coroner. And they're having a conversation in the office, and then they go, uh, she goes, oh, is my husband here? And he's like, oh, yeah, he's in the other room, dead, because it's coroner's office. And then she goes in, and she pulls the thing back, and then he's like, I'm alive. And then he dies um, by then. So that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. It does seem like one, yeah. Probably shouldn't have brought him to the coroner's office. Well, we wanted a movie that had to do with the paranormal and true crime, and the invisible ghost seemed to encapsulate both sides of this, Jamie. Yeah. What well, the fact that the ghost is invisible, I thought was redundant. I feel like a lot of ghosts. I mean, that right? Yeah. 
Right. Like, like it would be shocking if it was the visible ghost. Am I wrong? And most most ghosts I feel like are invisible. Well, maybe they're going for the aspect that if you see a ghost on on camera and, and Jamie Kaler's interacting with the ghost of Dave Schrader, are you know, we're just gonna make it clear that nobody else can see him, just Jamie Kaler. So he's invisible uh, to all others. All, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm giving too much credit there as well. Well, also, I think it's it's amazing that the murder weapon in this, as that you could see in the trailer, is uh, simply just a coat. It's just a it's like a jacket he's wearing. Because each time he kills somebody, he takes the jacket off and then walks up with the jacket, and then uh, he jack jacketizes them to death. And uh, I don't know if you've I've had a couple jackets that honestly almost killed me. So I totally well, get it. I yeah. I think that they well i don't even think listen they are obviously treading on bella lugosi's connection to dracula because so many of his moments of being entranced he's got the dracula claw hand out and and then the fact that he when he goes in for the kill he lifts the jacket up to his face so he's giving that yeah that very weird kind of dracula yeah behind the cloak look they're so treading on that but it's bella lugosi come on yeah and so just i mean there's no spoiler alert because it's from 1941. And if you haven't seen it by now, here's how the story goes. Um, he, uh, listen, we, we have to say spoiler alert, spoiler alert. He, um, so he has a, look, we can do this together. He has a wife, right? He has a wife. Right, right. Who's cheating on him, I believe. Son of a bitch. And so she gets into a giant car accident with her lover and uh, she survives. Hmm. But... Uh, the groundskeeper, he knows that, that Bella Lugosi is so distraught that his wife cheated that he hides her away in his basement so that, and, and just tells Bella Lugosi that she's dead. Your cheating wife died in that car wreck with the other guy who does die. And so he thinks the wife's dead, but she kind of comes out at night and wanders aimlessly. Oh, she has amnesia. I forgot about the amnesia. Oh, yeah. Amnesia, sure. Which is, I mean, car accident, amnesia, that goes hand in hand. Honestly, I got into a fender bender. I, I, I couldn't remember anything for weeks after. It was crazy. That car accident. That's why they invented airbags because it was a serious rash of uh, amnesia. <laughs> and nobody, people would be like, I was in a car accident. What happened? Yeah. I can't, I don't know anything. Amnesia pandemic. It was a pandemic of amnesia back then. That was the, the 41 pandemic of amnesia. And she, so she goes wandering. And every time Bella Lugosi sees her, he looks out the window, it's raining, and she's like down there looking like an invisible ghost, I guess. And then he goes, Ugh. and he goes into a trance, and he's so angry that she cheated on him that he kills anyone who's near him. <laughs> and it's, he doesn't even like leave the house. He kills anyone who's in the house. So he kills the groundskeeper. He kills the maid. He kills... They're all in the house. Like, he doesn't go through town. They they must have been like, well, he should, like, when they were writing the story, they should, well, he should go into town and kill someone else. And they go, we don't have the money. We don't have any other sets. We only have this house to shoot in. <laughs> whoever he kills, he has to kill in the house. And then every day a new person's dead. The police come to the house and they go, we don't know what happened. And, he, and the police are like, oh, it's a real mystery. We have no idea what's happening here. And then they they arrest the boyfriend of the maid uh, because someone had overheard that they had a uh, they had a they had like a verbal argument. A boyfriend girlfriend had a verbal argument. That's the only piece of evidence. And he goes to death row. <laughs> so. He, wouldn't you be like, hey, I don't, I didn't kill her. Well, we heard you had an argument, and now you yeah, get not for us. Yeah, <laughs> we need somebody to hang for this. So obviously, you can't be the star of the movie, Bella. You, you're just kind of a superfluous <laughs> character. And I'm not. It's not like one or two people die. There's like a death every three minutes in this movie. Wow. And then one minute do they go? What about that dude? Not once until the very end. When the crazy amnesiac woman walks, oh, by the way, she comes into the house. This is the only reason they catch Bella Lugosi. She walks into the house and Bella Lugosi sees her and goes, goes and back in the trance. The cop. He tries to kill the cop. He starts choking the cop. And then everyone's like, it's him. He's the killer. It's gold. I love this movie so much. And by the way, 
Then uh-huh. the amnesiac woman is sitting on a chair and she has amnesia and then she just falls over and the guy feels her neck and he goes, no, nah, she's gone. Probably the same guy who he just that's he's the coroner. He just goes, nah, she's gone. And then she wakes up later in a coffin like I'm buried. Like they, they're very they're very bad at police work. And homeless people are really dead in this movie. That's what I took from the 1940s. Maybe they were just so tired of Bella and his family and workers that they just didn't care. Bury them. They're, but, I, you know, that's a sign of a good gardener. And, Jamie, you live out in California. You've got gardeners. I mean, to know that they're going to take your amnesiatic wife who's cheating on you and store her away for you, that really kind of goes above and beyond. And what is the tip you give to a gardener for that? Oh, it's at least you got to give at least a, a 20 bucks for Christmas, I would imagine, that right. time of year. But yeah. yeah. And, and then. Like he's the gardener's feeding the woman in the basement and clothing her and yeah. taking care of her. And but he and somehow she wanders out in the night just to like look up. There was some actually, uh, not jokingly, but there was some good camera work because it would open on Bella Lugosi and he'd go to the window and then it would uh, zoom out from him, zoom out to the woman, and she'd be like a zombie in the yard. And then it would come back to Bella Lugosi and he'd go like, uh. And, uh, <laughs> but they never give an explanation of why he goes into this fugue state. It's just because being reminded of her makes him bloodthirsty. Listen, it's, it's a psychological thriller. It's, um, you know, it's pre-basic instinct, really. There's a lot of early work here and, um, pre-basic instinct. So at some point do we see, do we see Bella Lugosi in the police and he crosses his legs and not wearing underwear? Is that, uh. Yeah, they that was one of the edited scenes. That's why it's only it's why it's only an hour and three minutes because that's the other twenty seven minutes is of his uh, uh, the interrogation. Lugosi's uh, yeah. Lugosi. Yeah. By the way, my favorite Bauhaus song, Bella Lugosi's Dead. Very that's nice. Here. Well, Jamie, it's great to catch up with you. I appreciate you stepping in and taking this task. And listen, obviously, I respect your time because each movie is getting shorter. I don't know what's maybe just a viewmaster next time. I'm going to set. That's it. It's just a, it's just a simple frame. But um, I would recommend you also think about 1941. Right. World War Two is just starting, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. there's an invisible ghost. I mean, you know about ghosts. I mean, is I that do. kind of the Yeah, actually, during wartime or when horror movies would really blow up during the Depression, wartime, and and points of strife, according to movie studios. So it's pretty pretty cool. So out of Wraiths, uh, so out of our Phantom scale, right, you've got one being Lamageddon. I was going to say Lamageddon. Five being like Sixth Sense, really amazing. Where would you put The Invisible Ghost with Bela Lugosi? Two. Two below below Lamageddon's grade that you gave it. Oh no, Lamageddon you said was a one, so I went. Well, I right, I was saying it's a one. You gave it like three stars when you did the or three phantoms when you uh, did your review. So Lamageddon, oh, I I was being a tad facetious. What? Um, listen, (laughs) let me get let me get this straight. If you are super high, Lamageddon could be could be worth a trip, but um, this one was interesting speaking of interesting parents unite every live tuesday at 7 p.m you can check out the parents lounge it is a live video cast and there is the audio podcast that follows it jamie kaler along with jason gowan explore parenthood and they have a lot of great guests that stop in to talk about advice tips on parenting or just their own parenting horror stories Jamie, as always, thanks for stopping in, buddy. Uh, One last thing, because it is a movie review show, if we are going to try to tell somebody a movie to watch, Mm -hmm. like this is a joke, like it's funny as a joke joke, but watch Ed Wood, which uh, Johnny Depp, Martin Balsam as Bela Lugosi, still one of my favorite movies of all. Martin who? Martin, Martin Landau, Martin Landau. That was close. Martin Landau. I, I might have to strip your movie scene card. He, he, when you... he won the Academy Award, right? Yes, to play Pulls the string! Pulls the string! And I have. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for tuning in with us this evening. With true crime and the paranormal being the topic of the day, it's it's something that I find fascinating, obviously, as we've talked about it now for 10 years of my career in paranormal uh, discussions. 
And this is an interesting, interesting time really to be alive when law enforcement is being encouraged to look outside the paradigm of investigative techniques, to expand their minds and experiences, to be more aware of other methods of solving crimes and cases. So whether it's reading paranormal crime thrillers or embracing mediums to aid in the quest for justice, there is a change coming. I'd like to thank our guests, Matt Mixa. Make sure to uh, check out his new paranormal crime thriller, Don't Get Close. That's in our Amazon shop. I also want to thank our good friend and uh, psychic lawyer, Mark Anthony. Check out his recent release, The Afterlife Frequency, also available in the Amazon bookshop. And to my good friend, Jamie Kaler, for another amazing movie review. Thank you for stopping in and being a part of this. Also, thank you all for visiting the Paranormal 60 and allowing me along on your journey. May the darkness be just a little more light with the information that we share here. And when a spirit cries for justice, will you respond? Make sure to like this video and podcast, subscribe, and tell everyone you know about it. And for our new podcast listeners, please rate and review the show. That really helps and goes a long way to help me out. So go ahead, give it five stars. You know you want to do it. We'll see you next week right here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader and this Friday with the Paranormal 60 Minutes Newscast.